Scripture reading this morning is from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 12. I'll be reading from the New International Version. <coughs> so do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord, or ashamed of me, his prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle of a teacher and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am, yet I am not ashamed, because I know whom I have believed, and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. Thank you, Dale. Good morning. So for those of you who... Um, have not been a part of our Sunday evening services regularly. We've been studying through the letters from Paul to Timothy. We started with the first letter and we finished that up after, I don't know, three months. It probably took us to get through the first. I know it was more than that. It was a lot longer than that. Um, probably three months total speaking time is, is how long it took us to get through uh, 1 Timothy. But now we're in 2 Timothy and I thought since we're not having evening services tonight and I'm not yet ready to start uh, our new sermon series on grace, um, that, uh, that I'd bring a lesson from 2 Timothy to the morning services so that we can continue that thought, uh, but also to encourage those who um, have not been joining us on Sunday, Sunday evenings to join in, because there's some really uh, important lessons that we have uh, from Paul to Timothy uh, in, in this second letter. And so let me recap uh, where we are in 2 Timothy and, and kind of the, the scenario and situation that, that uh, Paul finds himself in. Um, so the second letter, much like the first, uh, is intended to encourage Timothy. Um, however, this letter has a much more dire undertone because Paul is now awaiting his imminent execution. He's sitting in a Roman prison writing this to Timothy, and he's days, possibly months, away from, from being executed. But even in light of all of this, Paul encourages Timothy to not be ashamed. To do not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, he says at the beginning of verse 8. And that, of course, relates to the gospel, to the doctrine. Basically, everything that Timothy had been taught, what he had learned from Paul, and what he had learned in his upbringing as well. Now, the second half of that exhortation in, in verse 8 was not to be ashamed of Paul himself as a prisoner of the Lord. And Paul leads off this section telling Timothy not to be ashamed of these things, but then he ends it by saying that he himself is not ashamed of these things. And secondly, uh, a little bit further as he, as he wraps up this, uh, well, as the chapter wraps up, um, he talks about uh, a man named uh, Onesiphorus, who was not ashamed of Paul, and he often visited Paul and encouraged him in prison. Um, he was not ashamed of, of Paul and, and why he was in prison. Uh, so it's important that we as Christians should also not be ashamed of the Lord. We should not be ashamed of his gospel. 
And to Paul's situation, we should also not be ashamed of any suffering that we may experience in his name, whether it be mocking or ridicule or, um, you know, if we have a, hold a specific belief and someone, you know, makes fun of us for that or calls us an idiot for believing in this invisible being. I've heard that more times than I can count. That's the same situation. Paul is a physical prisoner for the Lord, but sometimes uh, being attacked and persecuted um, holds the same suffering and the same pain um, that that could hold as well. But this morning as we uh, look into this lesson, I want you to think about whether or not you've ever been embarrassed about being a Christian. Have you ever been ashamed of Jesus about his gospel or, or felt shame for being persecuted or picked on or made fun of because of your faith? If you have, and I think all of us can probably relate to this in some capacity over our life. Maybe it's not something we struggle with currently, but it's something we've struggled with before and possibly something we'll struggle with again in the future. Um, So let's let Paul's words provide reasons why we should not be ashamed, because these are the reasons why he was not ashamed. Paul was not ashamed because he overcame it. He overcame the shame because he knew the Lord. More specifically, Paul overcame shame because he knew who the Lord was. Verse 12, he says, I know who I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able. Right? We just sang that song. Um, But these are two points, and really are two points that we're going to focus on this morning, of how Paul knew the Lord. First, Paul knew who Jesus was, both personally and spiritually. And this knowledge gave Paul the courage to suffer at any cost. He said as much in his letter to the Philippians in chapter 3, verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth uh, of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Who is the Lord? Who is this Jesus that we follow, that we call ourselves disciples of? Who is this man who is called Christ, who's this, the, the Messiah or Savior. Turn over uh, to Matthew chapter 16. Uh, we're going to look at uh, verse 16 specifically. But while you're turning there, allow me to share some identifying terms that the prophet Isaiah gave us in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For, the, uh, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder in his name, shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Those are some identifying terms. Those are who Jesus is. Do you recognize Jesus as your Wonderful Counselor? Do you recognize Him as God, as the Prince of Peace? Do you seek His peace, the peace that only the Prince of it could provide? Do you seek His counsel when you're in need? If so, then you recognize and identify Him as these things. And that's good. Now, if you turn over to Matthew chapter 16, um, we're going to look at the description that Peter gives of who Jesus is. Uh, We're going to start at verse 13 to gain some context, though. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others... Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, 
the Son of the living God. There's two identifying factors there. He is the Christ, the Messiah, and He is the Son of God. Do you recognize Jesus as your Savior? The one who has offered Himself up on your behalf. The one who took on death so that we would not have to. That's what the Christ is. That's what the Messiah is. God's anointed one who brings about salvation. And it's only His Son, the Son that Isaiah prophesied about in Isaiah chapter 9, which we just read moments ago. Turn over to Colossians chapter 1. Another one of Paul's letters, of course, in which he gives a beautiful explanation of who Christ is. Uh, Look down at verse 13 when you get there. Colossians chapter 1. Uh, Verse 13 and following. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. There's a lot of things in there that describe who Jesus is. Do you recognize Christ as God's Son who took on flesh and embodied the righteousness of God on earth? Do you look to Christ as your example? Do you recognize Christ as the head of the church from whom we receive authority and direction to live our lives according to His Word? Do you recognize Christ as the beginning, the one who was before all things and through Him all things exist and hold together? The firstborn from the dead, Paul says. That, through the, that through, through the resurrection, we too shall be resurrected on Judgment Day. Do you know these things? Probably. You probably know them. But do you regularly recognize these as identifying traits of Christ? Turn over to Revelation chapter 1. And let's look at Jesus' own words about who He is. Now, we just saw with Paul's words that Jesus is the beginning of all things, but he's also the end. Look down at verses 17 through 18 of Revelation chapter 1. If you can't find Revelation, it's in the back. When I, uh, when I being Paul, Paul's, or I'm sorry, John, John who's writing this, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus says He is the first and the last. And in verse 8, we see the phrase Alpha and Omega used as well. I'm sure you've heard that. If anybody was a fan of the old a cappella group, they have a song, The Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and end. One of my favorite songs. Anyways, that is Jesus. He is the Alpha. He is the Omega. And Alpha is the first letter, omega is the last. Is the first and the last. All right? He says, I lived and I died, and now I live forevermore. His victory over death provided him the keys to death and Hades, as he said. 
In chapter 22, verse 16 of Revelation, Jesus also describes himself as the root and the offspring of David. Again, a beginning and end or first and last type comparison. So why is it important to know these characteristics of Jesus? Because these these things tell us his identity, who he is. Not just who Jesus was, what he looked like, etc., but who he is, the type of person he was. When people remember you, do you want them to remember you for your external features or for the type of person you are? If it's the former, then you should really look into the issues of vanity and modesty that could be skewing that belief. We should be striving to be the latter, though, for that is what Jesus provided an example to follow. Darkness doesn't leave an imprint. There's no residue of darkness. But light, it leaves a mark. When you're in darkness and someone shines a light at you, and when you close your eyes again, you still see the light. If you're in the light and someone shuts it off and you close your eyes, you still see the light. But it eventually fades away as the darkness continues around you. So is your life a light that leaves an impression, or is it a flicker that may leave a temporary impression, but only fade as the darkness continues to dwell around it? Knowing Christ's identity and who he is, not who he was, remember, he still lives, but who he is allows us to never be ashamed of him. To never avoid his light, but to reflect it for all to see. But Paul also knew the Lord, and he knew of the Lord's faithfulness. That's the second part of verse 12 of our passage of focus this morning. I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. That's the New King James rendering of that, where we get much of the song that we just sang. Paul committed his very soul, his very life to Jesus. He was confident that Jesus was able to save him on the day of judgment. Do you have that same confidence? Do you hold that same faith that Paul held? Just how faithful or dependable is Jesus in whom we trust for salvation? Hebrews is a fantastic uh, book that gives us many helpful passages when concerning uh, our salvation or understanding our salvation and our faith in Jesus. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18 says... For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And similarly, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Jesus is able to aid those being tempted. Do you recognize Jesus' faithfulness to do this? To provide you a way out when things help you, or when things tempt you? Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 teaches us that Jesus is able to save. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. And similarly, in the first half of John chapter 10, verse 28, he, sa- uh, he says, I give them, referring uh, in the context there in John chapter 10 to the sheep. He was um, talking about being a shepherd and the sheep. Um, and the sheep, of course, being those who follow him. He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. So he is able to save us, 
to give us eternal life. And then verse 28 there of of John chapter 10 goes on to say, No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand, and I and the Father are one. That's incredibly comforting, isn't it? That Jesus is faithful to us. He is able to save us and rid us of these lowly bodies, as Paul describes in Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 through 21. He says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This body doesn't belong in heaven. And that's why we're going to be transformed. But do we have faith in that? Do we believe that? Do we understand that part of Christ's faithfulness to us? When we know our Lord's faithfulness, how could we ever be ashamed or lose faith in Him? The more that we know and appreciate our Lord, the less likely we will be ashamed of Him. And the same thing is true regarding Jesus' words, something Paul exclaims in Romans related to being unashamed. Now, in this teaching, he provides the example of overcoming shame by knowing the gospel. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he opened his letter to the Romans much like he opened his letter to Timothy. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. For in the righteousness of, <coughs> for in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul knew that the message that he proclaimed was powerful. The power to save. Even though it may have seemed and may still seem foolish to many, which is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 118, he said, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. But what power is there in the gospel of Jesus? Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1. And of course, we just heard here in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, the gospel has the power to save everyone who believes. And for those who believe, the gospel has the power to cause one to be baptized, acting on their belief and becoming obedient to the will and commands of God. If you're in 1 Peter 1, look down at verse 22. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, let one another earnestly from a pure heart, since or love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Remember, gospel means good news. The gospel provides us the necessary truths and commands to believe and obey, to reconcile ourselves to God, thus bringing upon salvation. For the power of the gospel works effectively in those who believe. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when You received the word of God, which you heard from us. You accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work 
in you believers, Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. It is the Word, it is the Gospel that provides the means for these things. Not, not traditions of men, not opinions of men, but the Word of God, the Gospel. We don't need anything else added to it. It's sufficient for itself. Not only is the gospel at work within us, but the power of the gospel produces good fruit in those who know and understand it, which Paul lays out in the opening of his letter to the Colossians. But knowing these powerful things of the gospel, how could we ever be ashamed of it? If we knew and understood the power that the gospel has to save, to bring about baptism and salvation, how could we be ashamed of it? But the gospel is more than just powerful. It also encompasses the wisdom of God. Uh, and that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23 through 24. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul knew that the gospel contained a powerful message, but also that it contained the wisdom of God, even though it contained what was considered foolishness to the Greeks and caused the Jews to stumble. Something that we talked a little bit this morning about uh, Peter and Jesus when Peter was called and Jesus told him to go out into the water, go deeper into the water and lay off your nets off the side of the boat. That went against everything that Peter knew as a fisherman. He just spent all night trying in the shallows, doing what he'd always done as a fisherman. But Jesus said, nope, it's the middle of the day. It's early morning. Let's go out. Let's put your nets in the deep water. And, and Peter said, I've tried all night, but because you say this, I'll go do it. And of course, the rest of the story, I think we all know. But to, to Peter, what Christ was telling him to do was foolish. This carpenter telling him, a professional fisherman for many, many years, how to fish. That's foolish. But he obeyed. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable or impossible to understand are his ways. Romans chapter 11, verse 33. The wisdom in the gospel is well beyond what our stupid human brains can comprehend. We can never understand the full breadth of the wisdom that is held within. This wisdom was hidden for ages, but it was revealed to Jesus' apostles and its wisdom that we now have the opportunity to learn through the writings of the apostles. Check out 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23-24 through 24 in your private studies this week. Make a note. It's a great passage that details more about this wisdom. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, especially for the, the true abundant life on this earth and life eternal, are all contained within the gospel. And when we know God's wisdom in the, in the gospel, how can we ever be ashamed of it? If we understand all of the things that are held within it, the truths, the facts that we need to believe, the commands that we need to obey, how could we be ashamed of it? Because we understand that it has power to save. Sure, we have very good reasons not to be ashamed. Because the Lord we serve is a great and marvelous Lord. One who is willing and able to save, even though we've rebelled against Him. We've done so by sinning, 
continuing to sin. Or maybe we've done so by failing to obey. His word that we are to be proclaiming in this world is a great and marvelous message that offers the same benefits to all, no matter where they come from in life, no matter what sins they've committed in their life, no matter what part of the world they come from, the color of their skin, the language that they speak, etc. 2 Timothy 2.15, something that we'll look at um, in a a couple weeks as we continue this study on Sunday evenings. It says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We need to diligently study His word so that we can better understand it that we can better understand its power to save, not just ourselves, not just to to save ourselves, but also to save those around us as well as we proclaim this same gospel to them. I want to give you two more reasons to not be ashamed this morning before we close. Two more great passages from Hebrews. The first in chapter 2, verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. Should we then be ashamed to call him Lord? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 16, But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. God is not ashamed to be called our God. Should we then be ashamed to do just that, to call him our God, to say, I believe. Do you desire a heavenly home, a home that's been prepared for you? If you're ashamed to admit your faith and your belief to those around us when you're asked, or show it in how we live our lives, then maybe we're not desiring that heavenly home as we should. Our greatest concern should be whether we will be ashamed when Christ returns. And now, little children, abide in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. If you live your life in such a way that if Christ returned today, that you would hide in shame, then make today the day to change that. Repent and turn away from the things that make you ashamed. Take this opportunity this morning amongst the household of God to confess your belief in Him, repent of your sin, and be baptized into the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and wash away the sins that cover us in shame. It is what separates us from God that should bring us to our knees in shame, not the power of God, not the power of His gospel, not who He is, not the lessons that are taught in this Bible, but the sin that separates us from God should be filling us with shame. So much so that we should do everything in our power to change that and obey the commands of Christ. It is not Christ or our decision to follow Him that brings us the shame. If the church can assist you with any of these things this morning, be it through prayer or study of God's Word, if you just need to take time to understand better what it means to become a Christian, what it means to repent, all of these things that we're talking about, Now is a perfect time that you can come forward and let us know as we stand and sing.